0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Expeditions on the Engaging Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Frame. But I want to remind you that if you go and follow our podcast on Anchor FM, uh, the Engaging Faith Podcast, you can hit the subscribe button. You can also help support this podcast and our ability to provide this teaching and ministry to our listeners. Also, there's a way that you can leave a voicemail for us if you want to ask a question or interject a thought or an idea and you never know we might use that on our show or give you a call to interview you or talk with you so Engaging Faith Podcast on Anchor.fm that is where you can find that and be able to do that. I also want to remind you to check out our website at QMinistryProject.org. You can find out a lot more information about us and also get to our magazine website, UrbanWellMag.org. So this week we begin chapter 4 through chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. It's taken us 39 weeks to get here, but here we are. Uh, So, what we want to do first is we want to go back and we want to look at these different uh, interpretive models with a focus, just kind of a survey or an overview of the historicist position, preterist, futurist, and spiritual or or idealist position. That way we're we're grounded, we have a good idea of what these different interpretations uh, have come up with, the scholarship, etc., and why that's important as we begin to delve deeper into the mysteries of Revelation. So, without further ado, here we go all right We've finally made it and rick's not even here <laughs> rick isn't here so i'm gonna have to have somebody grab revelation chapter four we're going to read the first three verses only and and really before we even get to it which hopefully we'll get started on verse one when we get to here but we got to do some setup <laughs> we got to talk a little bit more uh, about what these these verses are about and what revelation 4 through 7 is so that's but well, you see up here, this is the unit that we're in. Okay, so, so chapter 4 through 7, and not completely through 7, but part of the way through 7 makes up this entire scene that we're about to jump into and discuss, okay? So let's just go ahead and, who do, Frank, you're going to read uh, chapter 4, verses one through, three. 1 through 3. Yeah.
1: After these things I saw, and behold, a door opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in spirit, and behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and one sitting upon the throne. And he who was sitting was like in appearance to a jasper stone and a sardius, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in
0: appearance. Amen. Wow. Big change in scenery, huh? <laughs> we've now moved from these letters to the churches that we've spent quite a bit of time talking about, uh, and now we're we're in this throne room scene that's taking place. And and this entire reality of what Revelation is is about to unfold in front of us. So, really if as we go through Revelation, we've said we're going to be talking about four major interpretive models that exist about Revelation, right? knowing full well that in each one of these, there's all kinds of splinters, right? There's all kinds of additional uh, thought processes, analysis, interpretation, all kinds of things that fit within it. It's not possible for me to go over every possible detail that exists in any of these positions. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna do our best to kind of stick to these four primary positions, interpretations, and then as we go through these verses and what have you, we're going to start kind of going with what you see here. We're going to have the historicist, the preterist, the futurist, and the idealist or spiritual position. And we're going to talk about some of the key major points or interpretations of these passages. And then there'll be certain areas that I'm going to kind of go off in more meaty discussion from certain positions. And when I do that, it's because they have more to talk about than maybe another position does. Okay, and so we'll go into that. I want to encourage you guys uh, to run with this stuff and go study for yourself, right? The Berean blessing like we talked about last week. Don't don't believe anything I tell you. That's an important statement. Don't believe a single thing that I tell you just because I tell it to you or you think you that I know what I'm talking about, okay? Because maybe I do, maybe I don't. <laughs> okay. it's, up, it's up to you and the Holy Spirit to dig into that word that you're holding in your hand and to go search out scripture and be ready in season and out of season yourself to give a defense for why you believe what you believe based on the word of God and the Holy Spirit guiding you through it okay? these are all just meant to say here's the best scholarship you know, we're, we're living in a time where we have the benefit of multiple things uh, that we have instant access to. You can pull out your phone and you can look this stuff up. Okay. Now the problem is we have so much information and so many voices out there that now, and it's only going to get worse, there's a lot of waiting. So in one sense, it, it's even worse for us in one way because we've got to wade through so much noise, through, through so much stuff that's out there and people's opinions you've got to have a mindset of let me check that <laughs> you know and check it means we start right here and then from there we begin to dig if if we you know if i'm telling you historicists preterists, futurists idealists are the four main interpretive models hopefully you've gone to look for yourself are these the four main interpretive models you know, I'm leaving a big one out that has come on the scene in probably the last 20, well, probably the last 30 to 40 years. And that's the whole Messianic Judaism uh, interpretation of Revelation. So I've got five volumes on that, and that stuff gets, you know, amazing. And I was trying to figure out how do I kind of get that in there. I've introduced a little bit. Remember when we talked about uh, the, the candlesticks? Okay. Well, that that comes from that line of thinking. How did they view it as a Jew? Okay, So context, all these things matter as we're interpreting. So here we're going to go over these first three verses and really chapter 4 through 7. What's the overall view in these interpretive models about this unit, this section? And why am I saying a unit or a section? Because really... It appears, when you look at the structure of the book of Revelation itself, that John, remember, I mean, we've talked about grammar gives hints. There's all kinds of hints and clues in the way that it's written, in the words that are used. And one of the difficulties for us, and the reason we need to study, is that we'll see a single word, and we'll interpret that that word in our current world mindset, won't we? or the way that we understand that word and what it means to us today, and we'll put that on the passage, and we'll interpret that entire passage of Scripture based off of that. Is that the right way to do it? (coughs) No. It's the wrong way to do it. We have to go and look at what are the meanings of those words in their original language, and that's only, if you stop there, you're not getting the full picture. So if you go and you pull out your dictionary, and your Greek lexicon or your Hebrew dictionary, and you look up that word and you simply go with that definition and you go, boom, I've got it. You're not getting it. You're beginning to get it, right? So then we have to begin to look at it and say, well, how do they, what's the context of their time? This is really important, right? Who is the reader? Who are they writing to? How would they understand these scriptures and what's being said by the writer, by the author, at that point in time, right? And so we've had this whole discussion about context and, and what that looks like, and there's a whole lot of other things. But we, we, we have these phones, and we have instant access to information, and you, we, we can Google all kinds of stuff, et cetera, and we go down all kinds of rabbit trails. We also have something else. We have archaeology, Right? Now, realize, you know, when the Reformation took place, they didn't, archaeology wasn't even a science, right? As a matter of fact, the evidences that we have the benefit of today, they didn't have at all, at all. They, they would find things and what have you, and somebody would keep it and take it and bring it to the church as a relic and make up a story about it, and then they'd show it to everybody and they just believe it. But archaeology didn't exist. Archaeology really didn't get started until really the the 1820s, 1830s, up to the 1850s. A little bit of it started in the late 1700s, but very, very little. But as a as a discipline, as an effort to go out and begin to find these places, and the Bible was the catalyst. Archaeology started out with taking that word right there and going to find proof of it, to find these places. That Scripture talks about. That's what literally started archaeology. And in every case, there's been no. That's exactly no right. Contradiction. There's yeah. been no contradictions. And archaeology is not going to prove God. Just like just like science, science's purpose is not to prove that God exists. Nor is it possible for science to prove that God does not exist. Okay. Now, I'll, people want us to think that, but it's not the case. So we have the benefit of. All these disciplines and and all of this information and this data. And and everybody in this room, I guarantee you, you have more than one Bible sitting in your house. Right? Many people didn't even have access to the Word of God. Right? They had to go to a priest. And it was questionable if some of those priests even knew what the Word of God said.
1: And the Word of God was changed changed to the pulpit. They couldn't even get it
0: down. That's right. Get it down. (laughs) So we have to realize those things. So what are these positions? Well, we have this throne room scene, and the big thing coming out of this throne room scene is what? The seven-sealed scroll. So the two big questions that we have going in here is what are the events? What are, what are the events that the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll, are dealing with? Right? And when, and when, when does it happen? When are these events going to happen? These are our big questions, right? Everybody looks at Revelation. We all dig into it. We want to know, what does it mean, and when's this going to happen? Does it affect me? Well, the answer to all of that is yes. <laughs> there you go. Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. So hopefully as we start going through this, you're going to really begin to maybe, and I hope you have already, I don't know how we'd be 39 weeks into Revelation just now getting to chapter 4 and all the material that we've covered and talked about in your viewpoint, not be changing a little bit. And Frank, I'm not looking at you just to make you feel uncomfortable. Keep it up. (laughs) Your viewpoint, your filters, drop your filters. As a matter of fact, drop your filters on everything that you think or believe and dig into the Word of God. Okay? Dig into the Word of God. And see what the Spirit begins to tell you the historicist. So remember, the historicist position of interpretation is that the book of Revelation is taking place throughout history. It's a progressive revelation, right? It's revealing itself through circumstances, through events, through people, through situations throughout the history of what? The church. Mm -hmm. From the time, we're in between the two advents, right? The advent of Christ, the first one when he came incarnated in the flesh, and took upon himself our sins and died on the cross for us, and was resurrected and went into heaven, right? To the time that he comes back. That's what the book of Revelation, that entire space of time. And all of the events of Revelation correlate to specific aspects or events or things that take place throughout history. So inherently, in that position, which by the way has been the historical position of the church predominantly, And when I say predominantly, I mean like the supermajority of the church history, this has been the position of the church in interpreting Revelation, okay? That doesn't mean that these other things are wrong, right? The historicist says that the unsealing represents the fall of the Roman Empire. That this scroll is talking about events that happened during the Roman Empire, and it's all about its fall. And the seal sequence begins with the reign of Domitian. Okay? And Domitian died in 96 A.D. What event took place several years before Domitian dies? The fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem. Now, guys, I, I cannot, I cannot, and I think you're going to see it very clearly. You have to understand that the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Was a massively significant prophetic event, and it cannot be left out of the interpretation of Revelation. I mean, it just can't be. And you're going to see details as we move forward. They're going to make you step back, you know. But they're also going to raise some other questions in your mind, which is good. Okay. So it begins with the reign of Domitian. And it follows the decline of the empire all the way through the 4th and 5th century. Okay, So 300 into the 400s A.D. Everybody knows when you get this side, which by the way, B.C. and A.D. do actually originally stand for before Christ and after his death. And, and, and you've started to hear this terminology used before the common era, after the common era, right, those things. That didn't start till the mid-90s. Late 80s, mid-90s. And why do you think that is?
1: Take the emphasis off
0: of God. Take the emphasis off of God. Take the emphasis off of Christ. That's exactly why. So you you see now textbooks and all that, even in the church, which is amazing to me, even scholars in the church have started converting over to B C and B C E. Or C E for A D, common error. Okay? Not error era. Did I say error? Era. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so in the in the three hundreds to four hundred. So when we're in the fourth and fifth century, right? The fourth century is three hundred A.D. Because you got to count the first one. Mm. It starts at zero and comes forward, right? Now, when you're on the other side, it goes the opposite direction. So when you're in fourteen hundred B.C. That's literally 1400 years ago, 1800 B.C., 2000 B.C. It's older when you're on the other side, just to make sure we don't have confusion. So, so from the, the Goths and the Vandals, and guys, you're gonna see amazing things about these invasions in the fall of Rome. That it's hard, I'm just telling you, it, it's hard not to look at these events and, and see almost exact descriptions. And we have historians, Josephus, and Josephus, his book's that thick. He yeah. mm-hmm. was a and Jewish historian. He, this guy was detailed yeah. historian. Detailed historian. Josephus Philo, many others. Pliny the Elder, on and on. Okay? It's gonna be very difficult to look at these I mean it's it's mind blowing how accurate. And then to turn around and say, oh, but that's not what that's about. Okay. Right, so through the fourth and fifth centuries, the Goths, and then this is the oldest position, right? So there's a lot of detail, a lot of a lot of options, and we're going to explore a number of those as we go through Revelation. But then here's the preterist. The preterist, because these events are so <coughs> amazing, right, that we see in history, you have this entire position this entire uh, interpretive model centered around, this is all about, the book of Revelation is entirely 100% about Rome and Israel, the fall of the Roman Empire, and ultimately the fall of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so that's what they believe. They believe that the unsealing represents the judgment of God upon Jerusalem. It starts, this event that culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? And and guys, you got to understand, it's not just the destruction of a city, right? right? What was destroyed?
1: The temple. The
0: temple was destroyed. So when they destroyed the temple, what else did they destroy? All the documents. They destroyed documents? They, they literally destroyed the entire Jewish what? Way of life. Man, their whole religion... In a way, was was destroyed because now it's not destroyed; it's not gone. But can they do what they're required to do in the Old Testament? No. Even though Titus had given specific
1: instructions not to harm, not to harm—that's exactly right. And the word didn't get to the troops,
0: and they sacked it. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. He gave very specific instruct there instructions not to destroy the city not to destroy the temple and and there was such when you read josephus and we'll talk about this it wasn't it wasn't just an accident okay it wasn't a mistake and oh man there was just a break in the lines of communication that's true that is what happened but that's not actually what was happening in the people as described by josephus who was there This is an eyewitness historical account. Empirical evidence. (laughs) Okay? He was there. And you know what he describes? A fervor, a madness came over the people. An absolute demonic madness overtook the soldiers. And it didn't matter if the word from Titus came or didn't. Because the Lord had already prophesied in the Gospels you know, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's not, exactly right. one stone left upon another. What do you think, I mean, when we, we spent all that time, we spent a year plus talking about the supernatural, right? What do you think the demonic realm, what do you think the spiritual realm was doing when they're seeing, when they're there, right? Because they're there. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. There you have it. The powers and principalities described there are not—it's not—it's not the socialists and fascists and communist governments. It's spiritual, and those spiritual that exists right now today. We we battle not against flesh and blood. We Frank, Charles, Nolene, Joel—we battle against the spiritual realm, and a madness came over them, a frenzy that was terrifying. Well, they destroyed it. Has it been rebuilt? No. no. We can, Jerusalem, we can go to Jerusalem, yeah. right? But, but that temple? temple? Not the temple. Mm-mm. As a matter of fact, there's only one wall. The Wailing Wall. There's only one wall standing.
1: And there's also discussion about whether that is the right temple or was it over here? because of the soldiers living back here. There's all kinds of I stuff. Mean, yeah. You know, you just, wait a minute. We know it's that area is the temple. Yeah.
0: But is is the Dome of the Rock the actual Holy of Holies? Is, is that actually where? Is that the actual spot? But there's something else here. We see these dates, right? <laughs> 66 to 70 AD. That should jump out at you, right? I mean, what's in the futurist position... Right, we've already talked about everything. All of Revelation is about what? What time period? It's in the future, right? It's the Great Tribulation, and it's a seven-year window. Okay, at the the very end, and three and a half years in, what happens? A peace treaty is negotiated, all that kind of good stuff, right? And three and a half years in, all hell breaks loose, right? Well, we got sixty-six to seventy A.D. Guess what you're going to discover? When we look at the actual dates and time frames, this, this, this 66 is when Domitian, okay, when they go to quell the, the uprising, the Jewish uprising that starts. And ultimately at the end of this Jewish uprising is the destruction of the temple. Do you know exactly how long from the beginning to the destruction of the temple, do you know exactly how long it was? Huh? No? <laughs> what? and a half years. (laughs) What? Wow. Okay. Here's another piece. We're going to see the 144,000. Well, is there 144,000 historically? Yes. (laughs) Now what's that coincidence? So the preterist looks at these specific events and the historicist looks at these too and says yes the preterist narrows it down and says this is all about rome and the fall of jerusalem the book of revelation after all we've we've already talked about john speaks when 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 he opens up this revelation man we're told chapter one i think what verse 19 in there that this is going to be what you're about to see are events that are imminent these things are going to happen these are about to happen So much so, a preterist looks at that and says, that means you have to look for the fulfillment of Revelation within this generation. And then it just so happens when you look at all these events, hmm. Okay. So they say even the 144,000, there were exactly 144,000 Jewish Christians. What did Jesus say when he was prophesying over that the destruction of Jerusalem was going to take place? And it did, right? Less than, what, 27 years later, it takes place. And he says, man, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the nation surrounding Jerusalem, what are you supposed to do? Run for the hills. What? Run for the hills. Run for the hills. Don't even go down into your house. If you're up on the rooftop, don't go down into your house. Why would they be on the rooftop? Because that was where they hung out. I mean, literally. That's where they spent their time. Don't take anything. Wrong. Don't go down to get anything. Immediately leave. And pray that you're not pregnant if you're a woman. And pray not that it's not winter time. Leave. <laughs> okay? And that's what they did. Right flat. As soon as... That's right. As soon as the armies were beginning to surround Jerusalem... The 144,000 Judean Christians immediately fled Jerusalem. And where did they go? They went to Pella in the mountains. Is that a coincidence? That's pretty striking. <laughs> okay, and we're gonna look at that in detail. What about the four horsemen? They, they say, the preterists and even historicists get into this, right, that the four horsemen represent the Roman invasion of Israel, starting with the Jewish rebellion in AD 66. And naturally, what's following? You have bloodshed, you have civil war, you have famine, you have death, and ultimately you have the fall of Jerusalem. It's complete destruction. That's the preterist position. And then we get to the futurist. <laughs>